0: Anyway, this weekend, I want to start on a a short series over this week and next week. And I want to talk about the Lord's Prayer and I've entitled the message, A Revolutionary Prayer. And the reason I want to talk about the Lord's Prayer is because it's uh, so incredibly familiar to all of us. It's probably one of the first things that we learned to memorize when we became Christians. And we learn to recite it even from the early stages of our Christian lives. In fact, we often use this as a way to close out, you know, our communion services. And if I were to ask all of us to recite this prayer, most of us should be able to recite it verbatim. And you know, the amazing thing about this prayer is that it's not just being used as a structure to help us build our prayer lives by considering the principal areas that the prayer consists of. But um, I want to take the next uh, couple of uh, the next two weekends this week and next week as well to talk about this because I think that we need to look a little bit deeper and I hope to be able to show us things that are far more uh, in depth about this prayer than we might normally have understood it. I believe that when Jesus taught His disciples this prayer, He wasn't just teaching them about the content of prayer, meaning what is it to pray for, but He was also setting in motion truths that would have a deep impact on the church and on Christianity itself the form that we have today. Amen. And uh, so um, uh, this will of course become clearer as I look at um, each of these components of the prayer. So to start off, let's recite the Lord's Prayer together. Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 to verse 13. I am going to use the King James, uh, New King James Version, you know, because there can be a lot of versions out there. You can memorize many different ones of them. And I think that this one is a good one to memorize uh, for the purposes of you know, um, communion or whatever it is or in your own prayer life, okay? So if you join with me, let's uh, recite the Lord's Prayer together from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to verse 13. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen." Right? Wonderful. And now for us to understand fully the depth of what Jesus was doing in teaching this prayer to His disciples, we need to understand firstly that the Lord wasn't teaching this prayer, you know, from a vacuum. In fact, there was a very deep and established religious life and religious practice that were governing the Jewish people during the time that Jesus spoke and taught us about the Lord's prayer. So it wasn't as though the disciples that came to Jesus, as though they didn't know how to pray. It wasn't as though, you know, the Jewish people had no prayer life or system for prayer at all. In fact, the Jewish life at that time was filled with various kinds a prayer. Principle amongst those prayers is something called the Amida. And the Amida is a really important central prayer that the Jewish people would pray. In fact, they'll pray three times a day in the morning, in the noon, as well as at sundown. And of course, there's a scene in the life of the prophet Daniel who prayed three times in a day, right? And the Amida literally means standing. So, this is a prayer that the Jewish people would pray while they are standing up. Now, doesn't this give context to us of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, in which He criticized the religious people and He said, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street. And clearly, this is a reference to the Amida because they would stand and they would pray this prayer. The Amida consists of 18 prayers and blessings. And of course, today, this uh, prayer has been expanded to 19 uh, components. Now, contrast this to the Lord's Prayer, which essentially is just nine parts. Now, when you examine both of these prayers, there are many similarities between the Amida as well as the Lord's Prayer, but there is also distinct differences. It was enough of a difference, you know, such that the disciples would come to Jesus in Luke chapter 11, asking the Lord to teach them how to pray. Clearly, there must be some very stark differences that the disciples observed between how the religious people would pray in their days vis-a-vis the Lord's personal prayer life. They must have seen something different such that they would come to Jesus and say, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Amen especially in the context that there is such an established system of prayer within the Jewish people. So it is in these differences that I want to emphasize because when you observe these differences, they are also the key for unlocking for us an understanding about what really is important concerning our Christian faith and our experience of God. Now, the first thing I want for us to notice is the language of the prayer. The very first word in the Lord's Prayer itself stands out in stark difference from the Jewish prayer, the Amida. The word that is used that begins this prayer is the word Abba. Abba means Father. So in the Greek New Testament Bible, when you come to the Lord's Prayer, it begins with Abba, our Father in heaven. That's what it says. Okay, so even when you read the Greek version of the Bible, this word Abba is retained there. there. Now, what is so important is that this word is not a Greek word. And this word is not a Hebrew word. Instead, this is an Aramaic word. And because of this, the writers of the New Testament felt it important enough to retain this word in Aramaic, even as they wrote the whole of the New Testament in Greek. And as a result, the uh, Bible scholars conclude that, hey, actually Jesus, when He was ministering on the earth, He wasn't speaking Hebrew and neither was He speaking Greek. But He was using Aramaic as a way of language that you would use to teach and to preach. In fact, uh, Aramaic was the lingua franca of his days. In other words, it's the common language of the people that the people were speaking. You see, the Amida, on the other hand, always had to be prayed in Hebrew not in any other language. And in teaching the Lord's Prayer in Arabic, Jesus was actually emphasizing something. You know, when it comes to Christianity, there is no sacred language. Amen? If you are wondering when you go to heaven, what is the language that is going to be spoken in heaven? It's not Hebrew. Hello? There is no sacred language for us as Christians. You see, this thing about language continues to be an area of great contention in many arenas. You know, if you have ever travelled to France, uh, I've been there once, you'll discover that the French are very nationalistic about their language, right? If you ever go to France and you just say, hey, good morning, can you help me? They will ignore you most of the time, okay? But if you open a sentence with a word of French, bonjour, can you help me? You know, so what I I did before I went to Paris, I memorized a line, you know. Uh, Je ne parle pas français, I can't speak French, you know. Uh, English? And then they'll be very kind, oh, at least you greeted us in the French language, now we'll talk to you, okay? And that's how it is. In many other countries, if you want to be a resident in the UK or you want to be a res- resident in Thailand, then you have to sit for a language test, an exam. You've got to learn English or you've got to learn Thai. So language is such an important component. Yet within, and, and within Christianity, this is true as well because there's a constant running debate as to what language, as I mentioned, is spoken in heaven. In some circles, in the Christian circles, they insist on calling Jesus Yeshua. Oh, because this is the Hebrew name of Jesus. We must address Him as Yeshua. We must pray in Yeshua's name. I want to tell you this, that it really does not matter because Jesus Himself didn't even speak in, uh, in, in Hebrew or in Greek when He was teaching on the earth. His primary intention was always to be understood easily by His listeners. You understand that? Now consider this for a moment. The Jewish nation is one of the most amazing people of antiquity because they were without land for more than 2,000 years and not just after the, you know, ascension of Christ, but also during the Babylonian captivity. And yet despite these times where they were put, placed under captivity, they were scattered all over the world, they were still a people that were able to retain their language, their religious texts, and their culture. Now, this is not… and and no other people in the world has ever done that. And this is not only a miracle, but a feat of intentional scholarship and devotion to their identity as God's people. Now, all this didn't escape Jesus. Jesus was truly, you know, Jewish, 100%. He was aware of his own Jewish uh, heritage. And yet in the inauguration of the New Testament, he set out to establish this important principle and truth for us. He came to establish for us that there is no sacred language that we need to adhere to in in, in our faith and in our pursuit of God. You don't need to learn Hebrew to become a more spiritual Christian, amen. And consider the impact of this singular element of the Lord's Prayer, the use of a common language of the people. Today, the Bible has been translated more than any other human text or book in human history. The whole Bible in its entirety has been translated into 704 languages. The New Testament alone has been translated to 1,551 languages, and portions of the Bible in 1,160 different languages. Can you imagine this? I wonder if you get amazed by the expensive foresight of our Lord Jesus Christ that even in using one word, one word alone has sparked this amazing proliferation of God's Word through the ages. Can you imagine how intentional Jesus was that when He taught prayer, the opening word, the language He used had such an impact? In the same measure, I want to say this, that we must maintain this original intent of the Lord. And that is to become understandable, to reach people in a language that they can understand. I've often heard people say this, you know, not often, but sometimes, you know, that people would say, you know, I must read the Bible in the King James Version. If I don't thee and thou, there is no divine inspiration. Well, all the best to you. I believe that we need to constantly have new versions of the Bible, right? And, you know, and and we we need to encourage new versions of the Bible that are textually accurate, but are progressively written in modern-day understandable language. Can I suggest this to you? If Jesus were to come to Singapore today, you know what language he will speak? (laughs) Singlish. That's the thing, and, and, and to take this further, the form in which we preach the Gospel and then communicate faith and disciple people must always evolve in order to be understandable to the new generation that is rising up, amen, and to every stratum of society. The second element of the Lord's Prayer I want to look at is the relationship. And we remain on the same word, Abba. We have not progressed beyond the first word in this prayer, okay? And that's how amazing the Lord's Prayer is. You see, the use of the word Abba conveys to us about our relationship, the nature of our relationship with God. Now again, in comparison to the Amida, the Jewish established prayer, the prescribed prayer of the Jewish people, the Amida begins by addressing God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You know, and, and in fact, this, this is true. This invokes uh, for many, the basis of the Jewish people's relationship with God, isn't it? Because it was a covenant relationship that was established first with Abraham, it came to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then so on to every Jewish person. And yet Jesus intentionally deviated from this traditional source of relationship with God. And instead, He focused on a simple address towards God as Abba Father. And this points to several things for us. Number one, it tells it, uh, it draws our attention to the racial element of this prayer. By calling God Abba, the first thing you need to realize is that we're identifying as part of God's family, right? We're not, Jesus didn't teach us, you know, uh, uh, the general or the commander of our faith. If He did that, the first identification would be the, uh, you know, the, the, the people of God as an army. But it is Father and that is about relationship as a family. You know, at the same time, in deviating from the Amida, Jesus establishes for us that our identity as part of the family of God does not come to us via the historical or racial tie that had to be traced back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? There is no racial or historical insider, nor is there an outsider. Our access to God requires no special parentage, nor genealogy, nor historical precedence. And this is important. This is so important. Amen. Let me tell you something about myself. I am there's not one ounce of Jewish blood in me. I'm Hokkien true and true. If you are, if you are my inner circle of friends, I will speak Hokkien to you, okay? Right? Not only that, I wasn't I wasn't born in a Christian family. I had no Christian background whatsoever. I didn't grow up with You know, Sunday school songs, Jesus loves me, this I know. I never knew that song till I became a Christian. I grew up with Mary Had a Little Lamb. I didn't know who Moses was. I no idea who David is. Parables, Psalms, Proverbs, nothing of this sort has anything to do in my history. In fact, when I was growing up as a young person, my father used to say this to me, Christianity is the religion of the white men. And he said it because all the missionaries were coming from America, they were coming from the UK, and they were, of course, Caucasians. I didn't even realise Christianity didn't come from the West. It came from the Middle East, from Israel. Amen. And so, I have no history whatsoever to do with Christianity, nor with uh, being Jewish. I was a total outsider, and yet the Gospel is precisely designed for a person just like me. With no history, with no connection, Christianity is meant for those who have no links whatsoever to Abraham, nor Isaac, nor Jacob, nor Jerusalem, nor David, nor Psalms, nor Proverbs, nor parables, or anything else. We, you know, God can take anyone and graft us into the commonwealth of the gospel. And all of us can rejoice in that. That's the magnitude, that's the power of knowing that He's Abba Father. A simple address to God as Papa, our Father, enables an inclusivity that Jesus intended. The second thing you need to notice about this title of Abba is that it is a direct address. You see, the, the, the title of Father appears in the Old Testament quite a few times, okay? And, you know, many, in many instances in which it appears in the Old Testament, God is described to be like a father. There are also instances in which He's described as the Father, okay? But there is no inter- instance in the Old Testament in which He was directly addressed as a father, meaning somebody goes up and says, Papa or Abba. And there is a huge difference in this, okay? I want to contextualize the difference for you, for example, uh, with, by using past tense as an example, okay? The first photo you'll see is Pastor with his granddaughter, Anna. And, uh, and if I could say this, Pastor is like a father, right? And many of us who have known him for years, grown up here in the church, he's like a father to us, right? And uh, the second picture is him uh, speaking to the church. And guess what? He is the father in the house. That's his title, the father in the house. But the third, the, the final picture I want to show you, that there is just only what, four people in this church that goes up to Pastiang and says, Hey dad, hey papa. None of us does that. I don't go up to Pastor Yang and say, hey papa, no. I say, hey Pastor Yang," right? You see, this is the difference in this prayer. You see, when Jesus taught us to address God as Abba or as Father, He's not, He's taking us beyond the point of God being like a Father or God being the Father, but He's asking us to come to such a place where we come to God and says, Papa. I come before you." This is a distinctive point that Jesus wants to make. You see, when Jesus taught this thing amongst the Jewish uh, hearers, I'm telling you this, many of them would have felt deeply uncomfortable and awkward. This was not a common religious practice by any means. And I suspect this, that many of us are awkward with this as well. Many of us, we know God and He's like a Father to us. Many of us, we know Him and we pray, God, the Heavenly Father. But how many of us truly have a walk with God where in the mornings we wake up and we come into the secret place and we we just say, Abba, Father, Papa, I'm here. This is what Jesus wants to introduce to us. And as it was awkward and uncomfortable 2,000 years ago, I believe today it is still uncomfortable and awkward for many of us because we fail to understand the power of what this prayer is teaching us, the extent of proximity that this prayer is intended to bring us to. You understand that? And finally, to cement for us this understanding or, you know, of the Father, we need to examine what is the definition of a Father? Because I'm not certain when we consider a father, what is the image that is conjured at? I guess for most of us, it would be our own natural fathers or somebody who's like a fatherly figure, figure in our lives. And we think to ourselves, then that is a father. But I want to say that no matter how good your father is, he's still a, a distant image of what God the Father is. In fact, God did not leave us without a definition of who the Father is or what is the focus of Him as our Papa. And He gave us a parable called the parable of the prodigal son. You see, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus told three parables. And in the triplet of parables He told, the first one is of the lost sheep, the second is of the lost coin. And those two parables are highly conventional. People listen to the parables and they will nod their heads and say, yeah, yeah, we can understand that. But when it came to the parable of the prodigal son, it was shocking. Because according to the law, if a son were to do something like that to the father, it was stoning by death. At the least, it was a permanent disownment, And you would never ever want to see this son again. And yet Jesus describes a father that was waiting for the son to come back. And when the son came back, not only was he not punished, he was fully restored into the place of being a son, with all the rights of a son. And the father had to correct the attitude of the older brother. You see, what Jesus was doing is Jesus was painting for us a definitive picture of what God the Father wants to be known as to us. So when you think of other father, don't think your natural father, don't think of a fatherly figure. Think of this father in the prodigal son parable and understand that he loves you and he's ready to forgive you and restore you. And in the same manner, we need to have the same father's heart. You understand? That's important. Finally, there is the revelation. And I want to look at this part, this next phrase in the Lord's Prayer, which is, Hallowed be your name. It was heard not too long ago in Sunday school, one kid praying the Lord's Prayer, and he said, Our Father in heaven, hello, what is your name? What does this word, Hallowed be thy name, actually means? The phrase in actuality means, God, make your name holy. Now, This is a strange phrase because I'm telling you this, there's so much on this phrase alone to be unpacked. This is, you know, and, and, and we really don't have time to go into this, but this is a deeply theological statement that has just tremendous implication. I'm telling you this one line alone, I think I can preach 10 sermons, okay? Because it's so, you know, it's so complex. It's so deep. But the obvious question that is raised from this statement is this, why his name? why must His name be made holy? Why not His character? Why not His temple? Why not His deeds? Why His name? And of course, you go back to the Bible to understand that when it comes to a name, name isn't just an identification sound that's your name? No. It's not just a sound that you make. The name actually speaks about a person's character and being. It tells us, you know, to know a person's name is to know the person and the essence of the person. And that's why Moses, on the burning uh, bush, he said to the Lord, he says, God, what is your name? So that I can tell the people. Because to know God's name is to then be able to relate to this God who is calling Him. And so this is important for us to realize. So when we pray to Him and says, Lord, make Your name holy, what is it that we are really asking for? How do you make God's name holy? Isn't He already holy? It's like saying, Lord, make make this floor more solid. Right? How is it? How do we make God holy? Us who are sinful, the best parallel that you can find is found in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 5 in which Isaiah has an encounter with the holiness of God. He sees the Lord seated high and lifted up. And this, you know, the the angels declaring, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. His immediate realization is of his own uncleanness. His immediate realization that, hey, he's of a different material. He is unclean, he's unholy. And God's holiness always demands a reciprocity from us, which is why Leviticus 11:44 tells us, "The Lord says, "You shall be for holy, for I am holy." And that was the emotion evoked in Isaiah that he says, "I need to be holy if I want to approach God." And so the angel of God comes, he purifies Isaiah in his lips, and then Isaiah responds, and he hears this question in the divine Trinity, and he answers the caller and says, "Lord, here am I sent me." You see? To understand this, you've got to pair the first statement with the second statement. The first statement says, Abba, Father who is in heaven. And the second says, make your name holy. In addressing God as Abba, it it brings us to a loving, close relationship with God. A relationship that God desires to have with us. You know, what is the proximity, what is a relationship that we can liken this to? The proximity we have to somebody else. But this relationship we have with God is not a common relationship. The second phrase points to us that this does not negate the fact that God, the God that we have drawn close to is a holy God. And we must never take that for granted. We must never ever forget that. And that's why we pray this second part, Lord, make your name holy, because this is the, the encounter that we all need, just like Isaiah had. And when we say, Lord, hallowed be thy name, we are saying to God, Lord, may we have the same encounter as Isaiah had, to see the holiness of God and to be impacted by His holiness. Because there's, on the one hand, there's something that draws us close to to God. But on the other hand, it's a tension to know that He is a holy God and you cannot draw near to Him unless you are holy likewise. And yet there is no way that this gap can be bridged because we are sinful men and how can we be holy? But Christ came as the answer, the one who crosses the divide, the one who paid the price, who makes us righteous so that we can become holy just as God is holy. In two simple statements, in the opening of the Lord's Prayer, there is so much that God is teaching us and showing us. I felt this few things as I was preparing this message that sitting amongst us, myself included, there are people that we know so well God is like a father. And we've experienced Him treating us like a father with His kindness and His love. There's so many of us, we know God as the Heavenly Father and we honour Him as our Heavenly Father. But there's so few of us who actually draw close to Him and call Him Abba. In our daily lives, in the mornings when we wake up, in the evenings when we put our heads to the bed, in our quietest moment where we draw near into the presence of God and we say, Abba. And I felt so much of God's heart, of so much of the intent of Christ when He taught this prayer to us. You see, we have memorized this prayer, but we've not really prayed this prayer. We've not really lived this prayer. And I want to encourage us, I so believe that God wants to open up to us a fresh, avenue in our walk with God, a fresh proximity, a fresh intimacy for us in our walk with Him. Amen. But on the other hand, there is this need for a revelation, to pray the second part. The first half is not enough. We need to pair this together with the simple prayer, Hallowed be thy name, make thy name holy. Because as you draw near to Abba, you also need to know that you're drawing near to Holy God. And we need a revelation. You know, many times, you know, we have young people that come up to me and ask me simple things. Pesalip, can I get a tattoo? Young men come to me and say, Pesalip, is it okay if I pierce my ears? You know, some of us who are older, were older or frowned at that. No. In fact, some of them will ask me, what does the Bible say about these things? You know, the truth is this, I really don't have a definitive answer for them. Is tattooing a sin? I don't know, because the only time it's referenced is in Leviticus and in the same chapter, it says that men cannot shave sideburn. So all of you men who cut slope, please stop. So what is it? But my answer to you is this, come into the holiness of God. What is better than for us ourselves to come into a place of revelation of His holiness And in His holiness, things will become clear. We will know what is it He wants us to do, what is it He doesn't want us to do. Because I'm telling you, this is not enough to live your life through a set of legislation and law the pastors, we are not here to set laws for you, do this and do that and don't do this because you end up dependent on us to give you decrees for the rest of your life. God did not call you to live a second-hand relationship through the pastors, but God's called every one of us to come into His Holy Presence and to know Him and to see Him and to experience Him. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, shall we? This might become a five-part series, okay? I only covered two statements out of nine so far. But I think what is important is for us in the right season to hear what God is saying to us. And I just want to ask us wherever we are to respond. If you know that you know God like a father and you know Him by His title, the Father, but you have not drawn close to Him to a point where you call Him Abba. This morning, I want to ask you, respond. It's a travesty that Jesus would pay all that price to tear the veil in the most holy place, to, to bring down every separation for us so that we can draw close to God and yet we stand far from Him, from a distance. You know, when my father died in the year 2004, sitting at his funeral, I met his friends, I talked to them and they began to describe a man that they knew, you know, that he was funny, he was excited about life, he was full of energy. And, and I was sitting in that funeral, and I was listening to his friends talk about this and I thought to myself, who are they talking about? Why are they coming to my dad's funeral talking about another man? And I realised they were talking about my father, but the problem is, I didn't know my father. I lived with him 30 years in my life and I didn't know him. Some of us have been Christians for 30 years and we still don't know Abba. Don't walk off today not knowing him because there's something about knowing God. But I'm telling you, don't stop there. As we come close to Abba, we must also invariably pray, God, make your name holy. Abba, make your name holy. Let me catch a glimpse because I'm telling you, God wants to bring us into His throne room and behold His holiness. And when we see His holiness, you'll know what you must do. You'll know where you're supposed to go. You'll know what pleases Him and what doesn't please Him. And it's not about right or wrong. It is not about what is permitted and what is not permitted. It's simply about Abba showing you what He wants for your life. Amen. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. If that is you today, if you say in your heart, I need to know Abba, I need to know Abba. Or if you're praying a simple prayer and saying, Lord, hallowed be thy name and today this is opened up and you say, Lord, this is what I want to pray, this is what I really need. Because I'm always wondering, what is it that God requires of me? But if I just simply pray this prayer, Hallowed be thy name, I know. Whoever you are, eyes closed, heads bowed, if that's you, lift up your hand. And I want to ask us to respond because you're not responding to me, you're responding to Abba. You're responding to something Jesus taught His disciples, to pray. And prayer is not a ritual. Prayer is not a task. Prayer is not a discipline. Three times this day, I must pray. Prayer is about drawing close and communicating with the One who paid with His life for you. Amen. And that's you just lift up your hands to the Lord, lift it up to Him right now It says, Lord, I… Papa, I need to know You. I've been a Christian all these years. I still don't know You. I want to know You, God. I want to know You, Abba. There are people in this place right now, you have such a wrong image of, of Abba because something happened in your relationship with your Father. And today, Jesus wants to change that for you. And that's you lift up your hands, I'm not going to ask you to come down because of the limitation of time, but wherever you are, just respond to the Lord. Amen. Father, we just come to your you, hands and our hearts lifted to you, Lord. I thank you, O God, that those who draw near to you, you shall draw near to them. Those who call unto you, you shall answer, O God. Father, You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will not leave a person crying out to You. And Lord, leave them unsatisfied, Lord. Then You said, those who thirst and hunger for righteousness shall be filled, O God. Lord, You are an answer. You answer to hunger and to the cries of all who call out to You, Lord. And this morning, we call out to You. Abba, 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 Abba. We need to know You, God. We want to know You. We want to draw close to You, O God. And Lord, we pray, Hallelujah be thy name, Lord. Make your name holy, O God. Let us no longer walk in our sins. Let us come to a place of realization of the invitation into your very presence and what that entails and what that means, O God. Lord, we draw close to you, O Lord. And Father, I pray for myself, for my brothers and my sisters, O God, and Lord, that this will be a people, Lord, that truly knows you, Lord. Father, what 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 a truth you've given to us from your Word. Just in the Lord's Prayer, Lord. Father, we pray, Lord, that we'll never say this prayer again as though it is a ritual. But we'll understand the expansiveness of all that you are communicating to us, the truth, Lord, that you're bringing to us, Lord, through these words, Lord. Father, we love you, Lord. Abba, we love you. Papa, we love you. Papa, we love you. Papa, we love you. Papa, we love you. Oh, Papa, we love you. We love you. We bless you, Lord. And now, Lord, I just speak your blessings over your people, my brothers and my sisters oh God, as the family of God, the blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you, now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap often, shall we? You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church.